All right, we've come to the fifth and final type of offering that we're going to consider here in Leviticus anyway. There is the drink offering that is uh, mentioned in other passages, but not in Leviticus. But um, this is the guilt offering, and I think I'd like for us to go ahead and read the whole section, and we'll break it down, talk about what it means, and uh, the various types of uh, sins for which uh, guilt offerings should be offered. So would somebody read 5.14 to 6.7? idea than we've had with the other offerings. Can you see what is different or unique about this offering? There's some monetary um, stuff going on with this offering. How does that work? Yes. That involves something Exactly. This is the offering that's made in connection with um, you're affecting the property or depriving someone of something that's due them. And so not only do you offer the offering itself, but you have to make restitution plus 20%. And so this is for specific kinds of sins in which there is the necessity of paying some sort of 
of, of debt and the damages over and above that. Um, now you might think about what some of that might be. For example, in verse 15, he says if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord. Now what would be a sin against the Lord's holy things? Okay, taking something from the temple that didn't belong to you surely would be a sin against the Lord's holy things. Or? Like eating them when you're not ordered to. Okay, yes. Uh, misusing the sacred parts of the sacrifice. Uh, what else? Perhaps more common, I think. Withholding what you owe? Yes. What if you didn't present the sacrifice you were supposed to, or the tithe you were supposed to, or something like that. So you didn't actually give the Lord what you owed Him. I think you've got things like that. Or in 17, now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. Perhaps here, he's not even sure exactly what it was. But... But he feels like he's, he's cheated the Lord out of something. Or in chapter 6, now do you see the difference in chapter 6? Just kind of look at the cases that are involved. I'm not really looking yet at the details. But what's the difference in chapter 6 from chapter 5? Perhaps intentional. There's another difference. Yes, against another person. Really, verses 14 and 19 of 5 are against God. But chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, these are against another person. And if you, you know, extorted something or robbed something or, or in some way swindled something that wasn't yours, then a guilt offering and the restitution payment is in order. So these are the kinds of situations that you'd use a guilt offering. Uh, when you'd sinned and actually uh, owed somebody something. Does that make sense in terms of the, the kind of situations that we're dealing with? Now look at what he says to do. In 15, 515, if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then what was he supposed to do? <coughs> Ram with a ram. Yeah. Supposed to bring a ram without defect. And what else? <coughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, to be, you know, priced, uh, to be uh, appraised, I guess. But what other main thing besides the ram he was to bring was he to do? He has to make 16 says restitution. Yeah. He has to actually pay what he owes. Plus, a fifth kind of damages, you know, <clears throat> because, you know, he held back or, or took something from the Lord that he shouldn't have, so he needs to, to pay it back plus 20%. Um, if you stop and think about it, the various kinds of offerings really show different aspects of sin. The burnt offering sort of shows the idea that the man ought to die. And 
the animal takes his place. The sin offering, sort of the idea that sin makes things dirty, and there needs to be some sort of disinfectant, some sort of cleansing. The guilt offering is that sin is a debt, and that, you know, something has to be paid. There's just different angles to sin, different sorts of sin. And so the repentance and the guilt offering involves restitution. Involves repaying what you owe, plus that 20% surcharge. When we take something wrongfully from God or from man, we ought to pay it back. And we owe that, plus the 20%. What were they to... Well, I'm not going to say that yet. What, what comments and questions do you have on the rest of chapter 5? <coughs> Yes, James. When the sin was unintentional, or this person was unaware, if nobody brought that sin to his attention, and he never realized that sin, so he met, never made the offering for that sin, would he qualify for this offering? Would he need to make this offering? Well, perhaps in 517. If he doesn't really know what he's done, but he's pretty sure he's done something. <laughs> Other comments and questions? You're on the rest of five? Yeah, what does it mean that the arena has, like, you have to find out how much the arena was worth or something like that? Does it need to be worth a specific amount? Or what's up with that? Yeah, I don't have a good answer to that. <coughs> Ram was appraised, apparently, but why? I'm not sure. Does somebody have a good answer for that? See how it does how big a sacrifice it is and see if it's worth the as restitution, whatever. Perhaps. What was the question? Well, what's the deal with this uh, praising of the ram in 15? I, th I saw this. They, were, they owed $100 and they get a $100 ram. Plus they pay $100. Plus the $20. But... Then that led me to thinking, well, if they owe a dime, <laughs> do they get a dime ram? <laughs> or if they owe a million dollars, do they get a million dollar ram? Wow. I don't know. Maybe we're eliminating other <clears throat> possibilities. But I'm not sure about the shake. I have something else to say. Okay. Um, we need to get off these topics. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> when you uh, read verse 16, I started about paying a fifth what you owe and add to one-fifth of it. I thought about how Christ died for us and that we pay him, we can't pay him even as much as he did for us. But yet he's so merciful to us that he just lets us pay as much as we can. We give him our life. And it just like you said before, it just shows the mercy of God, that God has that he will do anything just just to get us on his side, just to, just to let us give our life to him. And like I said, I mean, you have to pay... And this verse says you have to take what you owe and 20% or a fifth. But we can't, we can't give anything that is worth as much as Christ died. Being he's merciful enough to let us just pay as much as we can. Good point. We owe an unpayable debt. Totally unpayable. And the Lord has forgiven us our debt. That's amazing. John? I see there's a distinction between these sins that... Uh, that impacts somebody else and, and have a, uh, maybe a minor
monetary value. But back in verse 6, when he kind of seemed to equate a sin offering and a guilt offering, do you think it's important that we see a huge distinction between this guilt offering that's being talked about here versus the previous sin offerings that were discussed? You know, because in, in both cases, sin seems to be the driver for the offering. I think so. I still think there is a distinction. I don't think it's a guilt offering unless there is a... Um, I don't think there's a guilt offering unless there is some sort of a payment. And also, I believe that the blood was handled differently. Uh, I've got a note here. We'll have to get into chapter 6 and 7 to see this. But in the sin offering, a part of the blood was put on the horns of the altar when the rest was poured out at the base of the altar. In the guilt offering, it was sprinkled against the sides of the altar like the burnt peace offerings. So I think there is a distinction even in the procedure a little bit of the offerings. I don't think they're the same thing. They are closely connected. Brian. Kind of along with that, I noticed in verse 6 of chapter 5, when it was talking about the different situations for sin offerings, my translation says that he shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for a sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf of the sin. So... That's New American Standard. Do you think that he's talking about two different offerings, the guilt offering and the sin offering, or that it's just translated? I believe he's just talking about the sin offering, but the sin offering is for guilt. I don't think it's a translation question, but I think, I think you know, he's not. I think that the sin offering is for guilt, but it's not the specific guilt offering of what we have here now. That's what I think. So it says that if a man sins unintentionally, he's still guilty because he sinned. Think about uh, David in Psalm 19 asking God to forgive him of his secret sins. It probably would behoove all of us to frequently ask God to forgive us of the sins we're unaware of. And realize that we may be committing sins and never know it. What about maybe if we're unaware of right and wrong? and we're not aware of that there is sin, and we still sin, then we will be, like, as if we were kids and we did not know. We will still be accounted for for that sin? Well, yes. I mean, obviously God doesn't hold somebody accountable if he's not a responsible person. A baby's not accountable. But just being a, a responsible, accountable person and being ignorant of the law does not excuse our failure to observe it. shows the importance of praying to God. 
and growing. We can't just say, well, I don't know, and just be happy with that and stay where we are. If we're not growing and maturing and we stay babies spiritually, then that's unnatural, and God can't look down on that and say, well, I'm pleased with that. You know, that Why that? You know, it isn't growing and doesn't all this just tell us we are supposed to be the We are all needed every day. Just confess to God we are, you know, we're unworthy and we're sinners and we don't deserve any of your Think about how much emphasis God placed in them knowing his law. We would teach to their children to rise constantly. And when you read Psalm one nineteen, now it's supposed to be added to the Jewish people. And if they had the attitude, they would not have made many states, mistakes out of ignorance like this. And we, we sometimes think, well, you know, what, what about this, you know, complicated, you know, hyped-up situation here? Well, it probably wouldn't have happened if you had the right attitude about the law to start with. And, you know, God will have his mercy with people who are in, you know, those hypothetical situations. But most of these people aren't. And they need to stop. You know, I don't think they sit there and you know, thought of these complicated things to excuse themselves. They were in a position where they should know about the law. They had it. And there was something wrong that they did. And so if they were sinning because they didn't know about the law, there was lots of things going on wrong there, and not just the problem that needed to be fixed with some kind of sacrifice. Okay. Good point. I agree. Also, I have a question. Um, you know how you said that you can, you need to pray still if you are unaware of a sin that you confess? Well, I still think you need to pray, but wouldn't there be a mistake still, though? Because a mistake is just not knowing that something is wrong. And you obviously don't know that it's wrong. It's wrong to do if you're not aware of it. Well, not knowing uh, about a law of God does not mean we are not guilty of breaking it. Um, you know, you might not know that um, you know, I don't know that you're that the the thing you're about to touch, the line you're about to touch, is actually a high voltage power line, and it kills you. But you didn't know. Not knowing does not excuse the violation of God's law in nature. And not knowing doesn't excuse the violation of God's law spiritually either. And it's really not. You know, we're still guilty even though we don't know. Wasn't there a parable or something that said, you know, or it was talked about how a slave who <clears throat> disobeyed the master, the rule of his master, but he did not know that it was a rule, that would not be treated as harshly? Yeah, and the, the slave who did not know and therefore didn't do will be beaten with few stripes. The slave who knew and didn't do will be beaten with many stripes. That's Luke 12, about 45 to 48. So that is true. Uh, the the punishment would be more severe when we knew more and still didn't do it. But there's still guilt, even when we didn't know. We need to learn. That's it. You know, it does it does make it hard to understand why why we don't have more passion to learn and to know. It is so important that we understand God's will in every way. And and I'll go on. Beyond that, I don't know why we don't have more passion to teach and to reach out with what we do know to help others understand God's will. I mean, God's will is, is vital and fundamental 
We ought to value it and treasure it more than what we do. I think it would be along those same lines. It's maybe fair to say that we not only gamble our own salvation, but the salvation of our friends and neighbors based on the handle that we have on God's word. I mean, we don't have a good grasp of that. We can't help ourselves. And we can't help ourselves, we certainly can't help our neighbors. Good boy. And we can't help our fellow Christians because we all struggle and stumble and sin and need the, the reproof that we can offer each other. The, the encouraging thing, though, is that we can we should have confidence. We should have confidence in our lives as Christians before God because of His mercy and His grace. And we don't have to live daily in fear, wondering, you know, do I have a relationship with Him? If, if we are really giving ourselves to the Lord, right. that's exactly right. I've got a question, and uh, say there's a church that, as there's a lot of these that preach, uh, remit baptism for forgiveness of sins, but they still worship wrong, like they have instrumental music or something like that. Yeah, are those who participate in the service just attend that church? Are they guilty of sin? Well, we shouldn't we shouldn't participate in anything that's wrong. You know, so we shouldn't do something. We shouldn't join in doing anything. Today's society kind of glorifies ignorance because you're not ignorant, or if you are ignorant, then you're, you're not responsible. I guess is the hard thing for us sometimes to grasp because we push for ignorance in a way. Uh, but I think I think it's really neat what Paul says in First Timothy about how he acted ignorantly in unbelief about killing people, about arresting people for believing in God. I mean, not about uh, accidentally p- picking up somebody's whatever grain and using it to make your bread. It wasn't yours. He killed, I mean, he had people murdered and, and that was his ignorance. Um, it kind of brings things back to reality. Ignorance can be to that extreme and he saw that as, as ignorance, not as um, doing some terrible thing because he wanted to do it, but that is ignorance, too. And he still recognized his guilt during that time of ignorance. Yeah, that it wasn't okay because it was ignorance. But he was really torn up about that, what he had done, even though he was ignorant. Good point. Excellent point. Okay. It's kind of hard to imagine that God in his mercy will allow, would allow a person who is who doesn't know that he sinned continues in that condition without somehow bringing that to his, to his knowledge when he's dealing with it, if that person is going to serve him. That's a good point. I've been even mentioned this before, I think I may have missed it. What is restitution again? It's like paying back what you stole, or what you took, or what you didn't give that you should have, or whatever. Because my bad lay. This. 14 through 6, 7, group says offerings with restitution. Yeah, restitution means, you know, you you took it, didn't belong to you, you have to give it back. You restituted, you restored. Anything else on 5? In 6, then he's talking here about these sins against people. Like in 2. 
when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he is extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, then it shall be that he needs to do something. This sin against his, his companion is also a sin against God. God demands that he pay off of the sacrifice. Um, but he's taken something that didn't belong to him. In one of these kinds of a way, he is guilty. He needs to give back what he took and then add a fifth more to it and then come and present the ram as the guilt offering and have the priest make atonement. It is wrong for us to take something that doesn't belong to us and to give it back. In whatever way we've done that, as long as we've got our neighbor's money in our pocket, we can't be forgiven. We've got to take the, you know, you can't just go out here and steal a whole bunch of stuff, then ask God for forgiveness and keep the stuff. It wasn't allowed. And to give that stuff back. Comments and questions? That really applies to anything, not just monetary things. I've heard of situations. <clears throat> People say, and they say, I'm really sorry, but they continue living in that. And they say, well, I felt bad about it, and I talked to God about it, so I'm good. But they want to hold on to that situation they're living in. And that, that's wrong. Yeah, we can never continue in sin. I mean, that's even, you know, uh, more obviously wrong. Other comments and thoughts through 6 7. So, when he, because he's talking to Moses here, mm -hmm. it's 6, 6 1. Uh, so, when he says in 6 6, uh, according to your valuation, the your, according to your Moses, according to your valuation, is that is that correct? I assume it's according to the priest's evaluation. Where is that? 6-6. Six, six. I don't have that. What, what do you have? 6-6. Okay. And, uh, well, well, and he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guild offering. Well, that's interesting. and questions on that. Six, through six seven. Did we comment on this in five fourteen and six two? It says sin the next unfaithfully and we just I don't know, I just wouldn't think particularly I know we're back talking about five I mean sorry, five fifteen that he acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally <coughs> that seems contradictory. Six two seems more consistent. That he acts unfaithfully and then sins. Well, if he's acting unfaithfully, it just means he's sinning, right? I guess so. 
chapter 6, these things would be intentional? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> kind of hard. <coughs> well, I mean, <coughs> in some of these cases, it would seem to be hard to extort something from your companion accidentally, I guess. <laughs> Pay up, but I don't intend this. Four times as much? Zacchaeus, Luke 19. <coughs> Which is more than he had to, right? A lot more. Uh, perhaps. Well, four times would be 400% compared to 120. Although there were certain cases in which if you stole something, you had to pay it back. I guess that's what we, if you got caught. You had to pay it back like fourfold or fivefold in some cases. This might be an incentive to voluntarily go through the guilt offering process because if they find you with it, you're going to have to pay a whole lot more. Other thoughts? One reason for that having to pay more would be that there's a chance you might have to pay more to make it because it's almost the attitude of I'm sorry because I got caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Different if you get caught. Is there any two that he here in um, or is it he goes and has to make restitution and then he makes the offering for his sins to the priest? I mean, when you think about what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23, 24 about yeah. If you reconcile, if you're on your way to make your offering, you're going to worship, stop, and you reconcile your brother first. That's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that, but maybe so. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Maybe the thing you have to do is make restitution before you can bring the ram and be right with God. Anything else? Um, two, six, seven. All right, we've come to the end of a subsection or a section or something because this is the <laughs> manual about the sacrifices from the people's perspective. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to study this from the priest's perspective for the rest of chapter six and seven, and so we're going to look at it in terms of what they need to do. Somebody read eight to thirteen. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the, on the hearth, upon the altar, all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be, shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers, and he shall put on his body, uh, he shall put on his body, and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on, the garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it, and shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on, on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order, in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. The fire shall always be burning on the altar, it shall never go out. Okay. Um, these are, this is the manual of the sacrificial procedure for the priests, addressed to the priests and telling them the things that they needed to do. 
And in this section, what's he mostly emphasizing? Clothing. Clothing? Yeah, that's part of it, but what's he mostly emphasizing? Keeping the fire burning. Keeping the fire burning. That's, that's the, the main point. We're going to look at a couple other things. But he needs to keep the fire burning on the altar. Um, why? Or what would that show us? Absolutely. Constant devotion. Absolutely. You want to constantly be able to make atonement and to ask for God's blessings and, and to, to do the things that you needed to do. So, by keeping the fire going, access to God by sacrifice was always available. There was never a time the fire had gone out and you, you know, we're going to have to wait for the fire to get stoked up before we can make the offering. Our offering of ourselves to God, this living sacrifice, ought to be continual and not occasional. I think that would be a good application for us to make. Um, but also, in this, what were they supposed to do with the ashes? Yeah, and what did they have to do to do that? Change clothes to take the, the ashes outside the camp. Whatever ashes were left, they couldn't be left there. They had to be taken away from the camp. Comments and questions? Y'all know more about that than I do. Anybody want to <laughs> offer another comment about that? Thank you. Could you offer sacrifices at night? They just kept the fire going at night. The priest had to do it morning and evening. Yeah. Um, Exodus 29 and 38 talked about uh, morning, morning and that morning. Yeah, they do that. I never had any imagination that they offered sacrifices at night. They, did they do shift work? <laughs> 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 well, it says it shall be a continual burnt offering throughout the generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting. <clears throat> They have to keep it, the fire going, but I don't know about sacrifices right now. Like You're at the question about the, how it was designed in Exodus 27, verse 3, describes the construction of this item. It talks about you shall make its pans to receive the ashes, and its shovels, and its basin, and its, its fork, and its fire pans, and shovels, make utensils bronze. Uh, make a grate for its net, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at four corners, and you shall put a rim of the altar beneath the network maybe midway up the altar. It's almost like there's this pan underneath and there's kind of a box that goes around it and there's a grate that is on top of that where the offerings themselves must the wood must be you know the ashes fall through I assume and then they put the they must be able to put those stands through and lift that off and well, they had the shovels too. 
Maybe just put your shovel in there and shovel it out. That's my understanding. Very good. It's very helpful. It really would have been just easy to take all this for granted if you're an Israelite. I mean, yeah, these were the things that were real critical for them to sustain their, you know, that God go up there in the middle of them. And, uh, they needed this. They needed to smell that. You know, they wanted to show it. The sincere view wanted to smell that offering you know, all through the day. And then they, and they, good point, Ben. So, this was still the tenth meeting of the day. I looked down and carried around with them. So, how is this idea of not letting the fire go out work with them? We just couldn't light it when they set it up? Or? Look at me on that one. All right, who wants to bail me out of this one, guys? Sorry. Was the altar carried? The altar had to be carried, right? Yeah. So. Do that every moment. Is it carry a burning altar? Certainly, I would think that mostly this is for the time when they enter the land. I mean, to a great extent. So we're supposed to water for four years. <laughs> Good point. Divisions properly in this section, 14 to 23. 
Now this is the law of the grain offerings. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. Then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering, with its oil and all the incense that is on the grain offering. And he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma, as it is as its memorial offering to the Lord. And what is left of it, Aaron and his sons are to eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their share from my offerings by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the sons of Aaron may eat it. It is a permanent ordinance throughout your generations. From the offerings by fire to the Lord, whoever touches them shall become consecrated. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is the offering which Aaron and his sons are to present to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. The tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be prepared with oil on a griddle. When it is well stirred, you shall bring it. You shall present the grain offering in baked pieces as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And the anointed priest who will be in his place among his son shall offer it. By a permanent ordinance, it shall be entirely offered up in smoke to the Lord. So every grain offering of the priest shall be burned entirely. It shall not be eaten. We are dealing with the uh, priestly manual for which kind of sacrifice here? <coughs> grain offering. And how would you divide these sections? <coughs> I right, fourteen to eighteen deals with what? Grain offering of others. Yes, and nineteen to twenty-three then. Their own grain offering. Yeah. Okay. So think about fourteen to eighteen. We really know this already to some extent from what was said back in chapter two. <clears throat> but when they take, when they receive a grain offering from the people, what part are they supposed to burn before God? <coughs> Memorial portion. Yeah, the memorial portion, the handful of fine flour, some oil, and all the incense. That goes up in smoke. What's to be done with the rest of it? They eat it in a holy place. It is holy, uh, and and who is allowed to eat it? Aaron's descendants, the priests. That's the way that is. Uh, Since this is a holy offering, then... The priests could eat it in a holy place. Comments and questions on 14 to 18. The grain offering for the people. You wouldn't have thought of it as a holy place? Yeah. Uh, well, sort of a holy I mean, it's the temple compound, but we not have classified it as holy. Okay. I think he is here, so yeah. yeah. Good point. Okay. But just the idea that God was pretty specific here, holy things belong to holy places. And they weren't supposed to just take this but like, well, it's ours now and go walk around and holy things belong to holy places. We think about our lives today and you know holy supposed to have holy actions in our lives. And yeah, sometimes we want to put those in places and situations they haven't been in And then we try and rationalize, so, well it's a holy thing. It, 
in our lives, we need to look carefully where we're willing to go and what we're willing to put ourselves in. That's a good point. I like that point. There's a lot of applications we can make for us, Ben. That's a good point. I was saying, if this was all the priests that I had to eat, it wouldn't have kept them very healthy. So I figured some other people must have been, you know, they were bringing in their offerings, maybe they bring some other stuff to the priests as well, kind of a donation sort of thing. Actually, we're going to see various other things that the priests get. So, well, you're yeah, so, uh, but, but yeah, they, they got, they got, you know, a decent amount in some ways. I would think that there would be, like, a lot of people, I mean, it sounds to me with all these kind of offerings that there would be a lot of offerings all the time, like, yeah. a lot. If the people were bringing them like they were supposed to, yeah, yeah there's a good bit of work for the priests. Good to eat. Good to eat. Good point. Yeah, you're right. Shane. So most of what we're doing is going through the walls of the birth of all the different offerings. Yeah. This procedures and stuff like that. Yeah. We have looked at it from the standpoint of the offerer more. The different kinds of sacrifices and how they are handled more from the worshippers' perspective. Now this is focusing on the priestly perspective. What part belongs to them and how they're supposed to deal with these things. So this is most of the procedure for the priests. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it corresponds greatly. We're going through these things kind of a second time, but now more from the perspective of the priests themselves. Exactly. I think this answers um, one of the questions that we were asking back in chapter two. It says they're supposed to make unleavened cakes with it. So I guess maybe that's what you do if you have grain and it's just uncooked grain. Maybe you can take it and make unleavened cakes with it. Okay. Like verse 16. Yeah, good point. Perhaps. Although, (coughs) maybe that was the uh, (coughs) cooked. I don't know. I'll tell you, one thing that I think is really good, and I want to I wanna say this again. Man, you guys pay really good attention. You keep your attention, and you actually are interested in thinking about all of this and knowing. I think that is really exciting. It just, it's such a great thing. You know, it's what we ought to want. We ought to seek the Lord in everything He says. Whatever it is, we ought to want to know everything we can about it. Uh, but but I'm very thankful that you do. It's an inspiration to me and a good example. And, and I realize that God's the one who's put those desires to learn and to be excited about this in, in our hearts. And uh, that's really cool. <coughs> now, in 1923, this is for the priests. Would you have thought the priests would offer a grain offering? The Jews are they? They're not above the law. I mean, you know, they have to do these things as well. I mean, sometimes we tend to think, well, and they're priests. I mean, so they, you know, they'd be exempt. But that's not the case at all. And in fact, being leaders, they should have set the example. They're not perfect. I mean, they're human. And seeing as pulses were, no one's above the law, no, one, no one's perfect. We're not like Christ. They're, they're human too. They will still stand. <laughs> exactly. And, and they still need to make sacrifices. They still need to give 
the fruit of their work to the Lord, as anyone else would. Now, there's something special about the grain offering of the priests that's different. What's different? They don't eat it. What happens to it? It's all burnt. They don't take just a memorial portion from their own grain offering and offer it and eat the rest. All of it goes on the altar and is burnt. Why would that be? They're guilty of it. Yeah, exactly. It's for them. So they can't profit by that. They've got to be very uh, serious and, and respectful uh, about this. No, that would be a temptation. Well, uh, if I offer the sacrifice, I get some of this out of it. I don't offer a lot of sacrifices. I get this out. would be a temptation. Kind of like getting a kickback or something, yeah. <laughs> well, so they're used. They're giving flour too. Would this be the part? No, be from the other offerings that other people offer. The part that they got would be out of that, or this some other point. That's a good question. Could they take this out of the grain offerings that they received from the people? <laughs> Could they take? You know, they get some of the grain offerings from the people. Could they take that and recycle it and offer it for themselves? It, it's theirs. <laughs> It's theirs. I mean, that's kind of their wages, and they'd have to take take out of that, you know. It looks like it's basically destructive. And it it seems like you know when they put people in the whole place, you know, and they're supposed to eat it there. It seems like I'm straining into some instances. They were supposed to eat it. It wasn't like you know, well, this is your grain. You keep this here and eat it in the whole place. So wasn't there a portion of it they got also for themselves, for their families, and that? Of the grain offering? Well, not of the, of the grain offering. I think there but of a, other things. Of yes. other things, right. right. Yeah. Isn't there a passage somewhere where it says that they had to eat it within three days? That was the worshiper had to eat the peace offering in some cases that day, in some cases that day or the next day. Sort of like re-gifting, you know. That's a <laughs> question. All right. Well, it goes back to your thing about it's a sacrifice. If it's given to you and you just got it, it's not going to be sacrificed. I mean, if it's yours and you have to give it up, then it's a sacrifice. I mean, if it's given to you, it's not much of a sacrifice. Yeah, on the other hand, yeah, you're right. I mean, I agree with you. But on the other hand, what about that? What could you give that was yours? We don't have anything. Everything we get given to us, either by the Lord or, or in some other way. <laughs> it's all from given by the Lord. Well, what I meant was the stuff that you get from the people from the grain offerings. What I meant, you can offer that because I, it was given to you. Yeah, I understand. But I'm just saying, in some senses, everything is given to us. What do we mean from the Lord? I mean, yeah, <laughs> which means that we're just using the Lord's money, you know, by the present to give to Him. Exactly. Right. You know. And there was a reason why the, the priest got part of this. A labor is worthy of his wages. And so, you know, they, they couldn't get that way, but they got another way, and they made up for it in there. That's a good point. Good comment. Let's see, uh, with the idea that, I should remember what the idea triggered this thought, but something Shane said, um, that, oh yeah, that the priest, that we would think of them having to offer sacrifices. And really, this kind of true that we wouldn't because they were always in the temple doing the 
will of the Lord. And so they didn't have time to sin. Um, you know, they, they, they were always there offering sacrifices. And so they couldn't. They, it, was, it would have been a lot easier for them to stay sinless. But I think that's uh, something that we can learn as well. That, you know, when do we find ourselves sinning? Well, it's not generally when we're sitting in the pew at church, you know, worshiping the Lord. You know, it's when we're lazy, being lazy and not doing anything. The more, the more we're doing, the more spiritual activities we're doing, the easier it will be to stay sinless. That's probably true. If you, it's like I've always heard about keeping your mind pure. If you fill it all up with God and good stuff, then there won't be any, then there won't be any room left over for sin. It's the same way in the activities that you do, because if you stay busy with not only Bible study, especially, but also other like sports and stuff like that. If you keep yourself busy, then it's and then it's a lot easier to stay sinless because you don't have time to technically to circulate that in your head. And because uh, most sins start with the thought of doing it. So if you can keep yourself busy, then maybe there's less chance of the sin sneaking in. In some cases, yeah. It just makes us want to fill up our time with God. I mean, make us want to study the Bible more and make us want to pray more because, I mean, how, like John said, how can you sin if you're if you're just completely occupied with God? And that would be the smartest thing to do. Why why would you want to sit there and think about sin when you can sit there and pray to God or study your Bible? I mean, it's, it's, why waste your time? Very good. Good questions. Other thoughts? John? I'm not totally clear on verse 20. Is he addressing a specific uh, instance here, a specific situation where these priests are going to offer this grain offering, or is he describing just a, a general uh, situation? This a, this anointing? Uh, or I, I'm wondering if he's not talking about both. That was kind of my idea when I went through it, is that um, they did have a grain offering on the day that they were anointed, specifically, but that was like all the others. Um, you know, because verse 22, it's a permanent ordinance, and verse 23, every grain offering the priest shall be burned entirely. So maybe there is, a, in the consecration, they'd have a grain offering, but actually they had to treat all of them that way. Okay. Is this offering dealing with the high priest offering this, or a priest offering this? I say... A priest in twenty Aaron and his sons. Well, Aaron was the high, you know, the high priest, and his, but his sons were. Yeah, so exactly, exactly. All the priests, high and otherwise. High and low. I don't know if I want to talk about low priests, but uh, high priests and not so high priests. <laughs> Alright, other comments and questions on the grain offering for the priest? I'm excited and I don't know on whether the priest could recycle. Yeah, I don't know about that. I, I'm not sure how to look at that. I knew, I knew that I would get asked a ton of questions I don't know the answer to. Um, in Brazil, they tease me a lot about my favorite answer being, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if there's any uh, real great uh, honor in that, but... Uh, Gary, could, could we, would it be safe to say that did the 
Le- Levites, the Levit- Levitical priesthood, they didn't have any income outside of the tabernacle, did they? I mean, they had the pasture lands and so forth around the cities. Yeah. But they couldn't go out to tend them. Plus, maybe the kids before they were considered men went out and worked them. Well, I suppose they could have. They probably had, I mean, did they have families? Yeah. Oh, 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 Shut up in the temple 24 hours a day. Right. Yeah, good point. Yeah, they did have family. Yeah, I was going to for which course would, you know, do the temple service which week and, you know, things like that. And also, we ought to, and we'll say more about this later when we come to some passages to deal with this, but we make a mistake when we imagine that the priest's whole work was tabernacle work. Perhaps, I don't know, I hate to say the main, but a main work of the priests was to teach the people. Uh, that's a really key job. They were teachers of the people, uh, the God's law, the decision between the clean and the unclean, and so forth. I think we tend to forget that whole area, and there's lots of passages to support that. James? Didn't the Levites do a lot of that as well? Mm-hmm. I mean, wasn't that practically their main job, even more so than the priests? The priests and the Levites both. It's my impression. I mean, Malachi 2, I think, would be a good example. And even uh, Leviticus 10. Other comments, questions, answers for those? Right. You guys have got to study Leviticus a whole lot more tonight so we can have these questions answered tomorrow. All right, 24 to 30. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In, this, in, the, in the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place, in the court of the tent of, the meat, in the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh shall become consecrated. And, blood, and, and, it, and when any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash the, you shall wash what was splashed on. Also, the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken, and if it was boiled in bronze vessels, then it shall be then it shall be scored and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it, and the most holy. But no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make a holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. We're talking about what kind of offering here? Sin offering. And um, we learned some things about this. Primarily, we're dealing with the um, 
eating of the sin offering. Where was it to be? In the holy place. And what was going to happen if uh, some of the, uh, well, this sin offering came in contact with an, a, a vessel of some sort? If it was, if it was pottery, or it was to be washed and boiled, if it was like a bronze vessel. I think the idea is, like a clay pot would sort of absorb the juices, and you couldn't really cleanse it totally. Whereas a bronze pot could be cleansed. And the, this sin offering is a, is a sacred thing, and, and if some of uh, it touches like a clay pot, you're just going to have to destroy the pot. Because it's, it's too holy. Contaminated by the holiness, so to speak. And in general, the priest would eat a portion of the sin offering. However, in verse 30, what's the exception? Yes. If the blood is brought into the holy place, the priest can't eat. The blood was brought into the holy place in connection with which sin offerings? Ones that the priest was involved in, either for him, himself personally, or for the whole congregation. In those cases, the blood's brought inside the holy place, and he can't eat it. The body is uh, burned outside the camp. <clears throat> Comments and questions? On chapter 6. What does it mean when it says, anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated? It says that in verse 18 also. Mm -hmm. What Numbers. is that? Numbers 415 is another reference to that. My Bible says, Numbers 415 and Haggai 211 through 20, or 2 through 13, talking about if they touch anything holy, then you fail at what? Do these certain preparations? Okay. I think the, I mean, my understanding is you got to be cleansed and washed if some kind of a holy sacrifice is coming into contact with you. Because otherwise, I don't know, holiness is dangerous. And uh, because if you're not holy, you know, if you're a sinful person and you're coming with this holy sacrifice, it could be lethal. Um, kind of a stupid question, maybe. But well, that'd be a first. <laughs> Why does it say every male among the priests? Were there female priests? Uh, no. no. So why is it only Aaron male? and his sons uh, can be priests? Why does it say every male? Exclude their families. But their families wouldn't have been priests. They had males in their families. <laughs> yeah. There's a. I don't have a good uh, explanation for that. Does Anybody that include their families except for the females? I mean. In general, the family of the priest was allowed to eat the sacrificial meat, correct? We're going to see that a little bit later. Chapter 21 and 22. There's going to be some sections about that. Were there descendants of Aaron that weren't priests? I don't think so. No descendants of Aaron were not priests. The double negative. All descendants of Aaron were priests, right? So they 
Would, would it maybe be fair on, on verse 29 to say, since it says all the males among the priests, but I'm, I'm not sure we'd have to look up the original word, but it might mean the same thing as all the males. Yeah. All those people, you know. Could be. People that are being spoken of. Could be. I don't know. Kyle will look up his uh, Hebrew here and see what you can tell us about that. Kyle, it's uh, 629. Ben. Yeah, that was one thing I was kind of wondering about. Was it possible that the Levite could, or could have a different, no, have a different job other than priests? He's something other than a priest. Well, a Levite wasn't necessarily a priest. Not all priests were Levites. Uh, no. Not all Levites were priests. All priests were Levites. So there's no example of a non-priest Levite. No, I mean, instead of sons there, and the male Levite, there's no example. No. I'm not, I can't remember for certain if it says that yet. The sons of Aaron had to be priests. I can't remember if there's a Yeah, the sons of Aaron were priests. I mean, I don't know if there's any exceptions to that. What about, I mean, were there the sons of Aaron that chose not to be priests and could avoid that? There were some birth defects that actually. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, there were some 20, chapter 21 and 22 you couldn't serve as a priest with some defects. I got hands all over the place. I think Shane's next. I was going to ask a question. Yeah, you want to say something? I was just going to say, well, when they're the sentence of Aaron, like when they're born, I mean, when you're that young, I mean, you're obviously not a priest when you're that young, so that could be, you know. They started at age 30, 25, 20, depending on what passage you look at. So maybe it's just the signs that we're not appreciate. Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay, there could be. All right, back to James. I have related to that. Um, <laughs> sons of Aaron, what does that mean? Does that mean the son of the oldest son, or does that mean all his sons' sons? I think it means, <laughs> I think it means descendants. Every male descendant. Of the sons of error. <laughs> this is confusing. Well, I'll tell you what. We, uh, if if we had a dollar for everything that's been asked today, we'd be uh, independently wealthy. All right, Kelly. Uh, we've talked about this already. This is what you're kind of redundant. But in twenty eight, twenty eight, twenty seven, twenty eight. You know, if you're the priest that's that's offering this, I mean. It would be really tempting if you know some blood, little blood splash on something or something does something, just say, ah, I want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's so much like our lives as come. We just, we can't play fast and lose with our, even the small things of our lives. That's a good point. Uh, some of this would have been a hassle, but God's holiness must be respected. <coughs> oh, cool, Kyle. An answer. Uh, the question is about male and twenty-nine. Yeah. I mean, the word is zakar, which means male or man. That's not means. It means used eighty-two times in that's right. So it isn't. It isn't a generic term for humans. No, it means male. Okay. Thank you. Shake. Oh, they have male men. What I had more priests too. <laughs> Go back to sleep, man. Okay. <laughs> I was gonna ask a question. I think maybe it could have been in verse 29 it says all the males among the priests may eat it. Could it mean the males and his family? 
that only the males in his family could eat it? I don't know.
the, the offering priest, but the <coughs> non-baked grain offerings belong to who? Yeah, all the priests, not just the one who actually officiated. That's what I see in 1 to 10. What do you want to say or ask about? So, you know, in addition to just having the food that you those animals, they could use those skins and things and make things for them to sell or make money with them? I think they could do whatever they want. I think they just got the skins. That's kind of, again, kind of their commission out of the burnt offering. They don't get anything else out of the burnt offering, but they do get the skins. And this text is kind of making the, more clear to me the distinction between the sin and the guilt offering. I mean, obviously, yeah. obviously they're not the same, even though they're talked about almost similarly with even one verse. I think they are different. I'm not quite sure why he said what he did in that one verse. What verse was Oh, that was back in uh, 5, 6. Max. I just you know, we read these things and we we struggle to understand what they were to do in things. They have the same law. What in, how did they know what to do? Why do we struggle so much to understand it and they seem to just do it? They have Moses. I suppose they did have yeah, Moses and then later precedent. And I'll tell you my struggle, honestly. <laughs> You know, while I have spent quite a bit of time with Leviticus recently, I just don't know the law very well. And even Leviticus. You know, I finished this outline probably three weeks ago, and wow, you're asking questions, I'm like, yeah, that's over there, let's see, what did that say? We don't know it very well. I mean, that's my struggle. I can, I understand so much better, the better I know something. And, you know, if we, if we knew the law, like we knew Acts or Mark or something like that, some of these questions we would have the answers to better. Some of them, you know, we don't have every detail given to us. Maybe there were some supplementary instructions we don't have. I don't know, Ben? I don't want to just chalk it all up to language or cultural burden, but at the same time, you know, a lot of the way these things are phrased, a lot of things they reference, would have made instant sense to them. They would have gotten it immediately. And these things where we have to look up in dictionaries and things, and we can't underestimate how much of a barrier it was Just a lot more things would make sense to them automatically that we just have to struggle to understand. And so, you know, it doesn't lose its relevance for us today, but a lot of these practical details need to be on, which aren't relevant to us today, are things which are not so important that we understand exactly. Maybe a question we don't have an, an, an answer to, but uh, in verse 10, where it's talking about that the, these uh, offerings for the next oil are dry, they shall belong to the sons of Aaron. To one as much as another, do you think that the officiating priest just got that, you know, for performing that service, or do you think that they kind of put it into a common thing and divided it equally? It seems to me like the dry grain offerings are for all of them. I don't know how they divided them, but uh, but the cooked grain offering was for the officiating priest. That's the way I like this. Shake. In my level, this is called the trespass offering. Is that the same as the guilt? Yes. Okay. Uh, other questions and comments through 10? Yes, Eric. Um, well, I assume that he eats it. 
Yeah, half it for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I took it. <laughs> 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 Question made the scenes. Anything else, dude? Chad? You need to supply the for dinner in there. It is amazing what happens to this crowd after several hours of studying Leviticus. All right, if we can get through one more section, I think I'll be happy for tonight. And uh, so, how about uh, 11 to 21? Now this, go ahead. now this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings which shall be presented to the Lord. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, he shall offer unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil, and cakes of well-stirred fine flour uh, mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. Of this he shall present uh, one of every offering as a contribution to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. Now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving uh, peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it uh, until morning, over until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day what is left of it may be eaten. But what is left over from the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned with fire. So if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of this peace offering should ever be eaten on the third day, he who offers it will not be accepted, and it will not be reckoned to him as benefit. It shall be an offensive thing, and the person who eats of it will bear his own iniquity. Also, the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat such flesh. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which belongs to the Lord in his uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from his people. When anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or unclean animal or any, or any unclean detestable thing, and eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. Okay. This involves which offering? Peace offering. There's quite a bit of stuff here that we see. First of all, there are three different kinds of peace offerings. At least here. What are they? Votive. Thanksgiving and free will. Thanksgiving would be an offering because you're thankful for something the Lord has done for you. Votive would mean what? To pay a vow. You'd vow the peace offering. And free will would mean you spell like it, yeah. And uh, there are some specific instructions about different ones. He talks most about the Thanksgiving peace offering, because what was to be offered along with the Thanksgiving peace offering? Okay. Um, he shall offer unleavened cakes in verse 12, and unleavened wafers. And cakes of leavened bread in 13. And so 
the Thanksgiving peace offering was supposed to be accompanied by grain offerings, essentially. Ben. I know I'm seeing my quota questions here, but uh, it says a votive or free uh, a votive or free will offering. How was pronounced there? I took it as a but like I said, I said votive. That is the same thing as a free will thing. He voted to offer it to just because he wanted to. No, votive here means in payment of a vow. Not it's not from vote. It's from vow. I think they're two different ones. Mud has vowed. Yeah. Votive is a word that means in payment of a vow or whatever. Um, and and then you know the the peace offering sacrifice the um, whatever whatever animal it turned out to be. Um, when was it to be eaten for the Thanksgiving offering? That day. That day. None was to be left over for morning. I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if he wanted you to enjoy the sacrifice while your heart was really still thankful, while the blessing was still fresh on your mind, or if he wanted you to invite more people so you could share the sacrifice with more people since you had to eat it that day. I don't know. But you were to eat it that day, not leave any of it left over. But if it was a votive or a free will offering, when could it be eaten? That day or the next day, but if you keep it to the day after next, what happens? Burn it. Yeah. It's to be burned. What if you don't? What if you eat, try to eat it on the third day? That invalidates the peace offering. It's no longer accepted. Uh, and it's offensive, and the person who eats it will actually be held guilty by God. The thank offering is voluntary, but it still has to be offered the way God says. We must be extremely careful not to stray away from God's patterns. And there's one more rule about sharing in the eating of this fellowship offering, this peace offering. And what was that in 1921? You got to be clean. You're unclean for any reason. You cannot eat. cannot share in this meal. There's a lot of things I want to say, but let me just say one or two, and then I'll let you talk. Um, is there a New Testament sort of parallel to the peace offering? Yeah, I think the Lord's Supper is so. That's the fellowship meal that Jesus shares with us. That's kind of like a peace offering meal. And, and I might suggest that 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30, that talks about, or 32 even, that talks about the consequences of eating or drinking unworthily might be sort of a parallel here. God demands that we eat it properly. We don't eat it properly. God will, will punish us. And he was punishing, evidently, the Corinthians for eating it improperly. All right, comments and questions through verse 21 on the peace offering and the priest part in that. Yes, Eric. Uh, we talked about before how the peace offering says, like, uh, fellowship with God. Yes. How does that have to do with, like, Thanksgiving, the motive, like, payment of a vow and free will? Like, do those things fit in with that idea? Yeah, I think so. I mean... Uh, in being thankful, you're 
you know, having fellowship, communion with God, or you want to share this meal together because of your gratitude, or or you vowed to do this. I mean, that's all that really means. You do, you made a vow to offer some animals a peace offering, so you're paying that vow, and or free will. You just want to share that meal with the Lord. At least that's my take. Yes, he's dealing with here the offerer because in the peace offering the offerer eats a part of it. So this, the peace offering, he focuses more on the offerer as the principal eater. Good point. Other questions and comments to this point. I say three, Thanksgiving, votive, and free will. <coughs> and how is this out of order, Garrett? What would you say about this thing? I mean, from the first session. I don't have a statement about Not in the same order as those five were in one, two, five. I don't know. Somebody would know why? I'm going to offer an intelligent guess. Other comments and questions here through 721. What does it mean in verse 20 when it says he'll be cut off from his people? How you cut someone off from their people? I think they were sort of excommunicated. They were banished from the camp. Anybody else agree or disagree with that? I think it was the same idea as when they, when someone had leprosy, they put them in a quarantine. They had to send them away from civilization. I think that's what I think that's the same thing that they just had to take their belongings and put it and just take some stuff to they could provide for themselves with outside of the camp. That would be my view. Ryan? Well, in that passage in Numbers talks about sending potentially is cut off from their people and then bear them go. Is that permanent? Would they ever be restored? I'd say it's permanent. Cut off from his people. Anybody know anything about the restoration of cut-off people? <laughs> I don't think we know anything about it. I mean, another, I mean, idea at least is to do is cut off in that sense. And whether that was executed by the people or the Lord took care of it, I don't really know. What about the only, the only case I can think of? It's kind of speculative, though. We assume that Marion was restored. I think to be cut off from the people is just pretty much just to be like not not with them anymore. There's several schools of thought I know on the question of exactly in what sense they cut off from the people, whether it's execution usually thought of by the Lord or whether or not it's excommunication from the congregation. Are there questions or comments? Does it use the term cut off when it refers to stoning later on? There is a case where we're cut off is used okay. with killing. I know that. I can't think of it right now. Okay. I wouldn't say it's always the case, but I don't know. That's helpful. It's used a lot. I mean, cut off is used a lot. Yeah. Eric. Um, Anderson, I mean, 
Other comments or questions through 721? So the, the priests also shared in this peace offering? Yes. There was a part that the priest got. Um, Is that the grain part? We're going to see that in 28 to 36. Okay. He gets the breast All right. and the thigh. The right thigh. So would the timing then constraints, I assume... Apply then to the priest portion also? In other words, if I'm offering a peace offering and I'm to eat it that day, then would the priest also right. be supposed to eat it that day? And if I have an extra day, would the priest have an extra day? I understand your question. I'm not sure if I know the answer. The, the reason I'm asking it is I, I, if it's just for me, the accounting of that would not be too difficult, probably. But if I'm one of the priests who's involved in this, I wonder if it would get, you know, get difficult from an accounting standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the Jones, uh, you know, uh, goat. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Smell it, I guess. Just stamp a used by date on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Well, I think that it would be not uh, appropriate for us to uh, study any more than uh, seven hours a day. What do you think? But you all did well. I'm amazed that you all stayed awake and alert and eager. This is amazing. It's really encouraging. I'm sorry we didn't get a little bit farther. I would like to have gotten a little bit farther, but we'll do what we can. And uh, tomorrow we will start at 9.30, Lord willing. Uh, be here if you can. Bring someone with you or whatever.